Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In honour of Mother's Day this Sunday, and as a gentle reminder to any absent-minded sons and daughters out there, we thought we'd take a look at some suitable spring publications. Some are a wee bit dramatic, but don't worry, they all end well, and with a resounding message to make the very most of the loved ones in your life, especially when things get tough. To start us off, we take a look at Above All Things, with author Tannis Rideout, a heart-wrenching novel based on British mountaineer George Mallory's fatal attempt to climb Everest, and his wife Ruth, who is left waiting for him to return to her. It's sure to tug at your heartstrings. Next, we have an extract from An African Love Story, Daphne Sheldrick's best-selling memoir of her life in Kenya, filled with romance, life and elephants. After that, we celebrate the everyday reasons that make life worth living, mothers especially, with a reading from The Sweetness of Life, Francoise Aretier's philosophical look at the moments in life that we all cherish. Then we have an extract from Leslie Pierce's Forgive Me, a gripping story of love and forgiveness between a mother and daughter. And last but never least, Natalie Williams and I have a chat for a bit of Mother's Day's gift-buying inspiration. So let's kick things off with Above All Things. Above All Things tells the story of the 1924 expedition to Mount Everest, and it blends together the two stories. One is George Mallory's final attempt on the mountain in 1924, and the other is of his wife waiting at home for him in Cambridge and waiting to hear whether or not he's been successful. George was the last great romantic British explorer in a lot of ways. He hung out with the Bloomsbury group and there's the side that was the athlete that climbed and did gymnastics and side of him that wrote poems to his his soon-to-be wife. I knew really early on that I wanted Ruth to be part of the story. I thought that through Ruth we could get a different sense of George Mallory. One day in her life, just one day would be enough to kind of encapsulate what all those other days must have felt like. So to follow her over the course of planning her day, planning her dinner party, and then the repercussions of that seemed a good way to get at both of those characters. The notion of, of the love triangle was, was very much in, in place for me and did come to settle on George and Ruth and the mountain. To have this thing come in between them, I think, is something that a lot of people can relate to. So he was away for a good chunk of time during the war and then as soon as the war ended the first expeditions to Everest were being planned and so over the course of their marriage, they were married for a little more than 10 years I think, he was probably gone for not quite half of it which has got to put a tremendous amount of strain and obviously talking at a time too where there isn't email and messaging and Skype. The information you get is so long delayed and over such distance. And yet through their their letters, they seem to be very attentive to each other and very aware of their relationship and trying to find ways to be close, even though they're, they were so far apart for so long. The most recent letter is easy to find in the stack of them, the cleanest, the clearest, the one that has not been handled over and over again. George once wrote that he kissed my name where he had written it, and he wanted me to kiss it too and think of him. I still do, kiss his name at the end, mine at the salutation. I haven't asked if he still does that. 
I don't know what I would do if he said no. Next, let us transport you to the African Plains. Aged 26, I settled into a period of great happiness, married to the man I loved passionately and who was my perfect soulmate. Our honeymoon in Lake Manyara National Park was blissfully romantic. David was such an intuitive interpreter of all that was taking place, and we spent hours watching the animals as they went about their daily lives. He opened my eyes to the body language of the wild animals, the meaning of different stances and nuances. All these years later, I can still feel his presence as we sat close to each other, still and quiet and uninterrupted. Our body language told the story of love throughout our married life. I did not want the week to end, but the sands of time never stand still, and all too soon it was time to go home. I had missed Jill hugely and was looking forward to picking her up from my parents. As it turned out, I was glad she was not in Savo, for there was news that would have upset her. Fatima and Kanderi had gone. Piglet's recent departure, the warden of Nairobi National Park had kindly offered to look after him, had plunged Fatima into inconsolable grief, and soon afterwards she and Kanderi had joined up with a wild herd and had not been seen since. Fatima was Jill's favourite, and Kanderi such an impish elephant, who made us laugh at his antics. At least he was old enough to survive out there in the wild. Sensing my sadness, David gently reminded me that every wild orphan was on loan and could never belong to us. We were merely custodians for the period that they were dependent and needed our help. But after that, their place and quality of life lay not in semi-captivity for the benefit of humans, but with their wild kin. The fact that Fatima and Kanderi had graduated from our care to become wild elephants again was a cause for celebration, irrespective of how much we humans would miss them. Of course, I knew this from way back, when Bushy had left me. But any parting from a loved one is emotional. I thought carefully about how I would tell my little daughter when we were reunited. At least Jill would be able to find some consolation in Rufus, a newly born rhino calf that Dennis Kearney, the new assistant warden, had found one dawn outside my old home. There had been no sign of the mother, but a search party later came across the spot where she'd given birth. So it was assumed she'd taken fright and abandoned the calf when people had begun to appear in the morning. For the time being, Dennis and his wife were happy to raise this newly orphaned rhino, alongside three recently arrived buffalo orphans. When I told Jill about Fatima, she looked at me gravely, saying, That's okay, Mummy. She will help look after other baby elephants now, and have lots of new friends. At five, she was already far more astute than I had been at that age. I knew, too, that she would be captivated by a very different orphan that had been brought in by one of the rangers, a bedraggled little mongoose that had clearly suffered a painful head injury. I remembered Rikki-Tikki-Davy of my childhood days and just how endearing members of the mongoose family were. 
While this tiny creature could now fit into the palm of my hand, as a banded mongoose, he would grow to be about half the size of a cat, a lot larger than Ricky Tikki Tavy, who had been no bigger than a large rat. Covered in brown grizzled fur with thin black bands over his back, we named him Higgledy, because he moved in a higgledy piggledy fashion. In time, Higgledy made a full recovery from his head wound, though it was several weeks before he was able to stand without toppling over, and thereafter retained a slightly lopsided look, holding his head at a jaunty angle. He was clever and fearless, with an insatiable curiosity, and when displeased made his feelings known by erecting the hairs on his tail like a bottle brush. We always knew where he was by the characteristic bird-like peep of mongooses, and the only time he was silent was when he was fast asleep. At mealtimes he bustled up, sat on his hind legs with his little black nose twitching to savour what might be on offer, jumped up onto a lap, and for the rest of the meal laid his little paws on the table, every now and then hooking a morsel off a plate. Being mainly carnivorous, insects and meat were his staples, but unusually Higgledy became obsessed by cheese, so much so that the mere mention of the word brought him scampering along, growling in anticipation. Higgledy quickly became so attached to us, as we to him, that soon after his arrival he came with us to Niandaza, on the lower reaches of the Teva River, in the northern area of the park where David was supervising the construction of a borehole. It was urgent to provide a source of water that would open up a vast stretch of country during the dry season and also enable the field force anti-poaching patrols to operate further afield. A contracted drilling rig had already begun work on this project, and now we were set to follow. Along the way, we passed Rudolph, the old rhino who still lived in the Mopia Gap just across the causeway at Lugard's Falls, relieved to find him still alive and in good shape. But a while later we witnessed a pack of African hunting dogs tearing chunks of twitching flesh from the belly of a living impala. Jill and I were distraught, because the impala was literally being eaten alive. But David was consoling, telling us that at such times the animal is in deep shock and feels nothing, since the brain releases endomorphins, substances to numb the nerves and extinguish all feeling. He told us how he had seen soldiers suffer terrible injuries during the war, and that they sometimes had not even known they'd been wounded until they noticed blood. The pain came much later. In the future, I would experience this myself and understand the truth and wisdom of his words. It was surreal to be in the northern region, this time as the legitimate wife of David. It evoked memories of an aching longing for things that then I had believed could never be. I was now able to indulge myself, bringing feminine touches to our camp a little vase of wild flowers on the dining table, the bed linen turned back at night, and with the help of Frederick, provide the dishes David enjoyed, accompanied by freshly baked bread and cakes. Great Uncle Will's cast-down kettle was always on the go for much-needed tea for the team. Now a reminder to us all to take the pleasure in the little things with a reading from The Sweetness of Life. The following text will surprise those who know me from my anthropological writings. 
In all humility, I claim that this is another one of them, a fantasy born of my pen and inspiration, and it has a story behind it. One fine summer's day, if I may be allowed that expression since the weather was appalling, I had a postcard from Scotland. A very dear friend, Professor Jean-Charles Piet, or Monsieur Piet as I privately think of him, was sending me a few words from the Isle of Skye. They began, a stolen week's holiday in Scotland. I must explain that this great clinical scientist, professor of internal medicine at the Hôpital de la Piété, and greatly loved by his patients, of whom I have been one for 30 years, lives only for them and his work. I have never known him not to be on the verge of physical and mental exhaustion, devoting hours to each patient. A doctor who is capable of accompanying the day's last home if he or she has been kept waiting too long, or of going to meet another patient's train, as he once did for me, who is capable of mad generosity and equally mad whims. And here he was, talking about a stolen week. It leapt to the eye. Who was stealing what? Was he stealing a little respite from a world to which he owed all he could do, or was he not, instead, letting his all-consuming circle of acquaintances, his obsession with his work, his many and overwhelming responsibilities, deprive him of his life? We are stealing his life from him, I thought. He is stealing his own life from himself. So I began replying to him along these lines. Every day you are missing out on what goes to make up the sweetness of life. And what does it do for you apart from making you feel guilty for never doing enough? I began by setting down some major trails to follow and soon entered into the spirit of the thing, seriously wondering what is, has been and will, I'm sure, continue to be the sweetness of my own life. So what follows here is an enumeration, an ordinary list of, in one long sentence, of ideas that came to me of their own accord by fits and starts, like a long whispered monologue. It is about sensations, perceptions, emotions, minor pleasures and major joys, sometimes profound disillusionment and even pain, although my mind dwells more readily on the luminous than the sombre moments in life and there have been some of the latter. Beginning with small and very general things that we must all have felt very real to us at some time or other, I have progressively drawn on private, lasting memories fixed forever in powerful mental images, dazzling snapshots of experience that can, I think, be conveyed in a few words. This essay should be seen as a kind of prose poem paying a tribute to life. It is true that I think that I have not had too many problems in life. I have been lucky enough to deal in my work with intellectual questions that give depth and a singular touch of pleasure to everyday experience. I have enjoyed my work and still do. I have also been lucky enough not to know poverty or, unlike millions of human beings today, enormous difficulty in simply surviving. What I have written here could therefore look like the hedonism of a woman who has led a privileged life. However, 
I would venture to think that in describing pure sensuality, it evokes the actual experience of humanity in general. The reader will become aware of the length of time involved. I was born before the Second World War, which made a great impression on me, although it did not entail much suffering on my own part. Indeed, it meant that during long holidays in this part of Auvergne, that is now the Livradois National Park, I became familiar with country life of a kind that is now in the past. I shall touch only lightly on the time I have spent in Africa and my own experience of illness. But many encounters will be found here, oddities, an attentive eye for nature and what it creates, for animal, noise, sounds, lights and shade, aromas, and above all, other people. The reader will not find glimpses of my private life in this essay, or very few of them. Nor will I dwell on the pleasure of the intellect of research and writing, although those pleasures are intense. Or on love, although nonetheless it has played an important part in my life, as I suppose it will have done in those of readers. That was not my subject. What is it, then? There is a kind of lightness and grace in the simple fact of existence, leaving aside our occupations, strong feelings, political and other commitments, and I wanted to confine my subject in this essay to that aspect, to the little plus factor that I granted to us all and got to make up the flavour of life. 13 August. I was delighted to get your postcard yesterday I know that you were taking a holiday in that lovely place, an island to make anyone dream. You sounded happy in the mists of Scotland. All the same, you didn't steal your holiday in the sense of pilfering or misappropriating property. Instead, I would say that you are stealing from your own life every day. If you assume an average life expectation of 85 years or... 31,025 days, always having, also on average, eight hours of sleep a day. If you spend three hours, 30 minutes on shopping, preparing and eating meals, washing up after them, and so on. One hour, 30 minutes on personal hygiene and grooming, sickness, etc. Three hours on keeping the family going, children, transport, interaction with other people, DIY, work, etc., 140 hours of work a month for 45 years at a rate of six hours a day, leaving out of account the pleasure that work may give you. One hour a day for obligatory social relationships, conversations with the neighbours, having a drink, meetings, seminars and so on. Then how much time is left for the average citizen, male or female, to enjoy those activities that are the sweetness of life? going on holiday, to the theatre, the cinema, the opera, concerts, exhibitions, reading, listening to music or playing it, various ways of taking exercise, walking, going on excursions, travel, gardening, visits to friends, relaxing, writing, creative arts, dreaming, reflection, sports, all of them, board games and party games, in fact, games of any kind, doing crosswords puzzle, resting, conversation, friendship, flirtation, love, and why not add guilty pleasures as well? You'll notice that I haven't mentioned sex. You'll never guess. In what we think of as the active or working period of our lives, you have one hour, 30 minutes a day for all that, and between five and seven hours 
after because the time returned to the other tasks increase. And there you go, extending your working hours by taking time from everything else and missing out on all those pleasant things to which our deepest selves aspire. Just to remind us never to take our mothers for granted, we have a heart-wrenching extract from Forgive Me. There were no grounds to find Flora's death suspicious. The way she was lying, the absence of any signs of a struggle and the knife dropped over the edge of the bath made it clear it was suicide. The fact she was wearing cream silk underwear and the stark note left in the bedroom saying only forgive me suggested she had planned it in advance. Yet there had to be a reason why a woman who appeared to have everything, a beautiful home, three children and no financial worries, would choose to end her life. Debt, disgrace, terminal illness, an unbearable marriage or an illicit love affair were all possibilities, and perhaps something would come to light later. Yet Markham felt certain Andrew Patterson already knew the reason, or at least could guess at it, but he wasn't the kind to reveal anything which might reflect badly on him. As for Eva, her total bewilderment proved she knew nothing. Markham could only hope the post-mortem or the inquest might throw up some answers for all three children. To be left wondering why would be torture. Much later that evening, after Flora's body had been taken away to the mortuary and the police had left, Eva sat at the kitchen table nursing a cup of tea that had long since grown cold. She felt completely numb. Ben was next to her, still wearing his navy blue school blazer, in much the same state, not speaking, his eyes red-rimmed and swollen, and now and again he reached out silently for her hand. Dad was across the table from them, grimly drinking whiskey and only uttering a few questioning words now and then which didn't appear to need answers. Sophie was the only one who hadn't kept still. She had paced around the kitchen, one minute sobbing loudly, the next angrily demanding to know why their mother had done this. When she got no real answer, she would then flounce out of the room, pick up the telephone to cry to one of her friends. Eva looked at the clock at one point and felt surprised that it was only 11.30. It seemed to her that she'd been sitting here for a whole night. She wanted to go to her room, not to sleep. She doubted she'd be able to, but just to escape the atmosphere of brooding intensity that was pressing down on her. All the images of what had taken place earlier seemed confused now and out of sequence. There had been so many policemen coming and going, so much noise and confusion. She recollected someone, she presumed it was a doctor, saying that Flora had been dead for around two hours when Eva found her. She wondered why she remembered that when everything else seemed a jumble. Dad had cried earlier. She went to him to try to comfort him, but he pushed her away, almost as if he held her responsible. Another horrible moment was when the men carried Mum's body down the stairs on a stretcher. Sophie shrieked like a mad thing, saying they couldn't take her away, and when Eva tried to calm her down and explain that the police had to take her, Sophie accused her of not caring. WPC Markham had been very kind to her. She'd said people often said and did hurtful things at such times and she mustn't take it to heart. Eva found it odd that much of the detail of what had happened earlier was fading. The only part that was still crystal clear in her mind 
was her mother's white face above the bloody bathwater. That image played and replayed in her head over and over again. Was it true that the police had found a note which just said, forgive me? How could Mum say goodbye, kiss Dad and each of them that morning, then clean and tidy the house, yet go on to do that in the afternoon? Why? What could have been so terrible in her life that she couldn't bear it a minute longer? Earlier, she had heard Dad talking to one of the policemen. I gave Flora everything she wanted, he said. This house, holidays, she could buy what she liked and go where she liked. She loved her children. How could she do this to us? There isn't always an explanation for why people do this, the policeman had replied. But an explanation was needed. They were all distraught. If it was because Mum was terminally ill, if she'd gone mad or had huge debts she'd been hiding, that at least would make some kind of sense of it. Eva had never felt as helpless as she did now. As the eldest, she had always been the one who acted as peacemaker in squabbles between Sophie and Ben. If they were in trouble with Mum or Dad, she took their part. She wanted to try to comfort them both now and to reassure them that they would get through this, but she couldn't. She didn't have the words or the will. Dad, Ben and Sophie, they all seemed like strangers, not her family. She had never known Dad be anything other than self-assured, calm and in charge in any situation. Her friends always said he looked like Pierce Brosnan and was tasty for a middle-aged man. But to Eva he was just her dad, officious and controlling, lacking a sense of humour but always reliable. He had never been demonstrative nor was he the kind you could have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with. Mum had often accused him of being emotionless. Yet now, watching him nursing yet another large glass of whiskey, a five o'clock shadow on his cheeks, muttering forgive me over and over again, he bore no resemblance to the man who had always been so controlled and steady as a rock. Finally, we'll leave you on a more upbeat note with some ideas of books to go along with the bouquet and breakfast in bed. With us, we have Natalie Williams from our digital team. Hi, Natalie. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Natalie, can I ask you, what would you get your mum on Mother's Day? OK, well, um, I think I'll get my mum The Sweetness of Life by Françoise Heritier. I know I've talked about it already today, but um, it's just kind of a beautiful list of the things that make life worth living. So um, nice and optimistic and quite beautiful. Lovely. And have you read anything recently you think would be good? Um, I just finished reading a Lucy Wadham's contribution to the Penguin Lines series. Uh, it's called Heads and Straits. Um, and it's all about family. She talks about her incredible grandma who used to go on country strolls with Virginia Woolf as a child. Um, the sometimes fraught relationship she has with her own mum and her sisters. And I just think it's kind of, you know, a lovely conversation about families in general that mums might enjoy. Penguin Lines is a fantastic series. Um, it's just been released. Yeah, it was out uh, yesterday, which was Thursday the 7th. Um, this particular book is tied into the circle line, so basically there are 12 in total, and um, different authors talk about, uh, well, their relationship with the different lines, and, um, yeah. So we can have one for every reader. Exactly, exactly. Or two if you change in your commute. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, well, yeah, if you have the Victoria line and the Piccadilly, like I do, it's... Uh, you can read one as you go along. 
Brilliant. Um, and how about for our younger listeners, any kids' books you'd recommend? Okay, well, I think for a bit of kind of bedtime story nostalgia, I'd have to say The Further Tale of Peter Rabbit um, by the wonderful Emma Thompson. Uh, so Further Tales and Adventures of Peter as he embarks on a trip to Scotland um, beyond the boundaries of McGregor's Garden. Um, but the illustrations are beautiful, as you'd expect, and I think it'd be a perfect kind of bedtime story or present. And of course, Peter wears a little kilt in this one, I think. Uh, he does indeed, yep. Something you'd know about. <laughs> very cute. OK, thank you, Natalie. Thanks very much. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them on podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.